0: Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. My name is Nick. I'm going to dive right in. Now he has to come to church next week, you know. I know. Oh, Oh, okay. Okay. Juan, I'm warning you. When I say that, what do you guys feel? Everyone tenses up, right? Most of you know I'm joking, so kind of the tension is broken. But the word warning, when it's used in a work context, it's not a good thing, right? You get three warnings, then you're released. Um, Warnings are difficult things, because warnings are good things. Warnings are good things when they are based... On someone's care for us so that we don't hurt ourselves and so that we don't do something wrong but oftentimes we are warned not for our own good but we're warned for that person's comfort that person doesn't want us to do something or doesn't want us to go there uh, and there is this warning it makes them uncomfortable it makes their lives uncomfortable or they need to do something different um, warnings can be good, you know. Karen's 50th birthday, she wanted to go to Mexico with a good friend of hers. It is me. Uh, and, uh, and, so, and so we have this warning, which I really appreciate it. Um, this is the warning that I got from my taxi company. You can see, it's very clear. There's a, there's a red warning here. And it says, warning, scammers, airport concierge, or timeshare taxi personnel may try to sell you an alternative transportation. They pretend to help. Do not let them make a call for you. They will say your transportation is gone and that it'll take more than two hours to arrive. This is not true. Please walk away and look for our greeters. That's a warning that is for my benefit. That's a warning that I wanna pay attention to. And the writer of Hebrews is making a similar warning to the people that he's writing to. A warning alerts us to possible dangers. It's not an announcement of an automatic failure. A warning tells us that this could happen if this particular situation happens. But it's not saying that if you continue on this road, the outcome is already set. This is not the first time he's warning them and therefore us. He's already warned us that if the words of angels were binding, then Jesus' words are so much more binding. That if the Israelites who refused to enter the promised land suffered consequences, then there would be consequences that we would, re- that we would suffer if we refused to enter God's spiritual rest. Now, this is his third warning to the Hebrews, and there's an emotional shift here. There's an emotional shift in his language and in his his appeal that makes us want to pay attention to this a little more. This entire section is one thought, and and, and, uh, Joey and um, Jason on the men's camp were asking if they could rewrite some of the stuff I write because I write in one long sentence, right? (laughs) But I'm just being biblical, guys. You know what I mean? I'm just being biblical, Hebrews 5:11 to Hebrews 6:13 is one thought and I'm going to chop it up so that we can actually pay attention to what the writer is saying to us and more importantly what the spirit is saying through the word. About this, what is he talking about? About this, last week we spoke about Jesus being a high priest and that we have confidence to enter his throne because he is the fulfillment of the law and prophets. So this is the about this that the writer is talking about. About this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Uh, when Kiona was two years old, it was cute. You put her in her little high chair. Actually, not two years old, maybe one years old. It's been a long time. She's now 23, okay? put her in a high chair, and we, we don't move from milk to solids. You move from milk to this weird, gross, spackle stuff that you feed your child, um, and then you move to solids. And so she's sitting there, and my dad is feeding her this porridge in her chair, and she, she has texture is- issues, so she just threw it up um, onto the little table, and so my, um, sorry, my, Karin was feeding her, took her upstairs, and to wash her up and then my dad brings Fallon downstairs, puts her in the same chair, and proceeds to feed her the same porridge uh, that Kiona has just kind of thrown up over there. And she ate it until Corin came down. Until Karen came down and said, What are you doing? And he's like, What? She's eating it. What's happening? I don't know. What's going on? You know? When you when you are young, you don't make choices about the things you eat. When you're young, all you're eating is milk. And what he's saying is, it's okay to be immature, but it's not okay to stay there. It's okay that when you were younger in the faith, that these are the kinds of things that you started with, but it's not okay to stay there. That does not mean there's something wrong with you. It just means you're moving from immaturity to maturity. And so what he's saying to them, guys, I'm I'm trying to warn you about some real realities here, but you're not listening to me. Any parents out there? You are dull of hearing. Um, And so so this is hard for me, so I'm I'm gonna say this in a number of different ways. And so what what he transitions to is verse one. He says, okay, let me tell you how to become mature. You guys are babies and you're dull of hearing, so I'm gonna tell you how to become mature. He says, therefore, let us leave, and that word is not abandon. It doesn't mean to abandon or to forget. It means to move on from, to build upon something. So let us leave the elementary principles, or let us build on the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God and of instructions about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits, and so we slow down here, and we say, okay, well, how do we become mature? What are the elementary principles, my dear Watson? What are these things that we need to basically understand are the basics of the Christian faith? And the first thing is repentance from dead works, and repentance from dead works and faith towards God is not two actions, it's one action. It's turning our back on sinful works and turning our back on dead works so that we can actually place our faith in God. That's the elementary principle number one. The second principle is baptism. As a follower of Jesus, we are called to make a believer's confession of faith. And it's an external ritual that identifies what has happened internally in us. It's an inward conviction that we're saying, I am dying to self and I'm being raised as a new person. That's what that means. Baptisms, washings, the laying on of hands, laying on of hands where hands are laid on you in order to receive a blessing, in order to receive spiritual gifts. Even the ability to heal is through the laying on of hands. The resurrection of the dead, which is something that, particularly a certain sect of Hebrews did not believe was a thing, saying there is a resurrection of the dead. N.T. Wright says this, everyone has life after death, but not everyone has life after, sorry. Everyone has life after death, but not everyone has everlasting life after death. So we are all going to exist forever. And there is always going to be a sense in which the dead will rise. But whether we have communion with God or not depends on whether we listen to the warnings from the letter of Hebrews. Eternal judgment. Uh, Scripture is full of the idea that there will be a judgment, a separation, as to whether we have accepted the grace gifts that are present in the person of Jesus. There will also be a judgment for those of us that call ourselves believers, whether we have built on this foundation with wood, hay, or stubble, or whether we have built with gold and precious silver. Right, that doesn't sound very elementary, right? And he's saying this is the basics. These are the basic things that we need to understand. These are the things that we should be able to explain. This is our hope of glory. This is not just our hope of glory, but this is why this should be something that you, as my friend, as my family member, as my co-worker, should be interested in. And so he continues, and he says that if you are building on these elementary principles, then the next section is impossible. If you are building on these principles, then the next section is impossible. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. So I go to look in my favorite commentators and say, hey, I need a little help here. I'm pretty sure I know what this means. So I go to one of Jason's. Jason has a bromance with N.T. Wright. So I go to N.T. Hebrews for everyone and I'm looking and he just skips it (laughs) I'm not kidding he literally just skips it and I'm like that's not fair and Karin says that's what you should have done you should have just skipped this you know (laughs) we emphasize to restore them to repentance that's not the emphasis of this portion of scripture the emphasis of this portion of scripture is it is impossible and so what we think about is, what does it mean that it is, that it is impossible to restore them? It, it's impossible to actually fall away if we are building on the elementary truths of God. And so I'm going to unpack this more for us. You can't crucify Jesus twice, so what does this mean? Well, we can't tr- crucify him twice. Bible says he was crucified once for all. But what he's talking about is there can be a mocking, a rejection, a rejection. A humiliation of Jesus, which is what he experienced on the cross. The other thing we need to understand is that we cannot read the warnings in Hebrews, particularly, without understanding the encouragements that come from those. We cannot separate the warning from the encouragement to be bold and courageous. We cannot separate the warning from the understanding that it is God who does what he says he will do, and it is God who is who he says he is. Because the very next scripture, the verse 13 that we'll we'll cover next week, is all about God. For when God made a promise to Abraham. And so we try and separate this and actually say, okay, what do I need to do to make sure I'm safe? This is, this is about God holding you safe and how you stay in that safety. Make sense? So someone that has built on these elementary principles has had five things happen to them. That's 10. Has had five things happen to them, right? They've been enlightened. You know the phrase, I've seen the light, right? You know that? You cannot unsee something, right? So many of us are like in situations where we don't want to see something. It can be a little funny. Like I work at the YMCA, I'm in work mode, and I, um, I, I I'm I'm not thinking about anything else. I go to the bathroom, and the last thing that I want to see is yeah uh-huh uh-huh yeah old old. Yeah. And you, I can't unsee that once I, you know, when somebody, I, I can try to wash my eyes out. I, I can't unsee that. I've got I've to do something with that. The, the idea, once someone has seen the light, they cannot unsee it. Even if you choose to walk back into darkness, you cannot unsee what you've seen in that moment. When you've seen the light of the truth about who God is, that means that you've seen the truth about who you are, It means you've seen the truth about who the world is, who the church is, who your neighbor is, that is clear, there is no shadow, there is no unknown. We don't doubt in times of darkness what we know to be true in the light. And so that we're saying, your your eyes have been opened, you've seen, have tasted the heavenly gift. What is this heavenly gift? It is the experience of receiving a gift of grace and mercy that we did not deserve. We covered that last week. Grace and mercy is what we've received. It's what we go to the throne room to receive. Freedom from condemnation. Freedom from sin. Freedom from shame, fear, and guilt. But also freedom from meaninglessness. Freedom from purposelessness. It also means this massive, amazing heavenly gift of not just being absolved of my sin, but being adopted into the family of God. My eyes have been opened. I've received this heavenly gift. I am a sharer in the Holy Spirit. I've shared in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means there's a tangible sense of the power and peace and presence of God in my life. Because scripture tells me there is a deposit in me guaranteeing my future inheritance. It means the Holy Spirit is in me teaching me how to understand and apply the Word of God. It means the Holy Spirit is in me speaking to me and to others through the gifts that He's given me and the gifts that He's given the body to be able to bring me to maturity. It means that in my own life those gifts are activated, but it also means the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to execute what Jesus bought on that cross, which is power over sin. All of those things are amazing. My eyes have been opened. I've tasted the heavenly gift. I am a sharer in the Holy Spirit. I've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Three weeks ago, we spoke about the fact that the Word of God is living and active. We spoke about how it exposes, how it separates, and how the Word of God heals. It's the reality that the Scriptures are alive and active. The fact that they are the foundation for my thinking and my actions. That when I think about whether I'm going to do something, I actually go, and because I've tasted of the goodness of the Word of God, I don't need to vacillate because I know what is best for me. I know what is best for my community. I know what is best for my wife and my children because it's here. I don't need to guess. It's water for my soul when I'm thirsty, and it's food for my soul when I'm hungry. I've tasted of the goodness of the Word of God. The powers of the age to come We don't live in a temporal world. Right now, we are um, kind of kept in it in terms of our earthly tents, but we are eternal beings. And so everything about us is made to think of not just now, and everything in the world is trying to tell us this is all we have. Build for now. Build for your kids. Build a legacy. Even that is nothing in comparison to eternity when we will see Him face to face and receive our reward from Him. We don't live for now. We live for eternity. That is what it means to taste of the powers of the age to come. That even though the kingdom of Jesus has been inaugurated now, there will be a fresh inauguration when the Lion of the tribe of Judah comes to claim us as his own. My eyes have been opened. I've tasted of the heavenly gift. I've shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. So then, what is this warning about? What is this warning about? Because he's saying to them, if you return to Judaism, once you said that you have confessed Christ, in itself is an act of rejection of Jesus, and you would be unable to do that if you were truly in this mature state. So he's saying it's impossible for you to do that if you've received these things from Jesus. Now, the word fallen away here is an interesting word. The, the, that phrase, it's not, it's not one word, that phrase is only used once in the New Testament, and it's only used here in Hebrews. It's, uh, the English translation doesn't communicate what it's meant to communicate, which is a sense of intentionality. What it means is to take the wrong path on a road. It does not mean to get lost. There is a difference. There is a choice to make of whether I want to go this way or whether I want to go that way. And so the the word that is better to be used here is when we turn away rather than fall away. Because falling away implies that you didn't intentionally do something. Now, you wouldn't be warned if there was something unintentional, but you would be warned against something intentional. Now, this... Stark reminder and this warning is important because we have heard this phrase and it actually comes from those times Where it actually was true that all roads at that time led to Rome, right? All roads do not lead to Rome Some of us may think that spiritual journeys are like roads. They aren't like roads. They are like train tracks You are on the train line that will take you to a specific destination and there's a there's a crossroad where you make that choice but it is not about taking a wandering way and ultimately, well, whether I choose Buddha or whether I choose this kind of combination of Jesus with add a little new age or, or which is what uh, a lot of the Hebrews were doing, it's like saying, no, 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 we want to keep some of what was old and we want to keep something that made us ca- kind of culturally identifiable. We want to add some of this. And he's saying, no, no you, can't, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that not because he said it, not because I said it. You can't do that because Jesus said it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are not multiple ways. Now, this is not new in Hebrews. Throughout Scripture, and particularly in Jesus' teaching, there were many times where people thought they were followers of Jesus, and Jesus said, not so fast. There were times where Jesus says, this is how you will know if someone is truly a follower of Jesus. Colin Hansen says that unlike other sins, offenses, and weaknesses um, of believers referred to in Hebrews that have been wonderfully atoned for through Jesus' new covenant sacrifice and high priestly ministry, there is no provision for the sin of apostasy. For those who utterly reject God's gracious plan of saving people and bringing them to glory, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. That's Hebrews 10. We'll get to that. What he's saying is there... Every other sin is atoned for. But if you choose to reject all of these things that Jesus has said, there there is no atoning for you because you have rejected the only means to salvation. And the Bible continuously tells us that it is God that saves and it is God that keeps. And so when we look at a difficult passage like this, we've got to do, we've got to implement the first rule of biblical interpretation, which is let the Bible interpret the Bible. So the first thing you do when you see a passage like this is you look at the rest of the chapter. Then we look at the chapter, you look at the book. When you look at the book, you look at the, the writings in broad, kind of in a broad swath. And so if we're going to let the Bible interpret the Bible, then maybe we read the next verse, right? And the next verse gives us some clarity. Our new natures cause an automatic response to the grace of God, Hebrews 6, verse 7 to 12, For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated and receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near being called cursed, and its end is to be burnt. This is not a new concept. Jesus spoke about this you will know a tree by its fruit. And so what what the writer is saying is, the rain is indiscriminate in the way in which it falls. God's gift is to everyone. The potential is there. But ultimately, you will know whether a tree is a fruit tree or a thorn by what it produces. The idea that our choices, our pursuits, our treasures are an indicator of our eternal belief is not a new one. It's throughout Scripture. People that thought they were part of God's family and ended up not being part of God's family are not there. Jesus' famous parable of the sower. By the way, the only parable that he went to lengths to actually say, this is what that means. The only one. We should probably pay attention to this. The parable of the sower, he says, it is, what is the seed? It is the gospel. It is sown on the road. Immediately, it is snatched away by the birds of the air. This is immediate rejection of the gospel. What about the seed that is sown on shallow ground? It is received with joy and enthusiasm, but when persecution hits, it shrivels because it has no root. The second seed. The third seed is sown in thorny ground, and it rises up, but it is choked. It is choked. By the cares of this world, the desire for pleasure and for riches. And the fourth seed is sown on good soil. And it produces a fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. So we have this. We say, oh, wow, I'm, I'm beginning to see this pattern of actually our new nature should cause an automatic response to God's grace. Automatic. Not something I have to work at, but an automatic response. Because producing thorns doesn't happen to a fruit tree. Producing fruits doesn't happen to a thorn tree. Now, no. Some herbologists or whatever, arborists or whatever. I know there are fruit trees that also have thorns, right? But but I'm going to follow Jesus here on, on <laughs> Matthew 7. I want you to understand again the context of this. Matthew 7, immediately prior to what Jesus is talking about, is Jesus talks about the narrow gate and the fact that the way to salvation is not wide, but it is narrow, and you go through a narrow gate. Immediately after this parable, Jesus talks about those that say, I know you, Jesus, and he said, I didn't know you, based on your actions. So there's a thread that Jesus is building here. You will know them by their fruit. Do people get bunches of grapes from thorny weeds, or do they get figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, and every rotten tree Produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a rotten tree can't produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, you will know them by their fruit. The other hermeneutic principle is that the Bible interpret the Bible. Where have we seen this phrase before? In Hebrews. The rain that often falls and produces a crop. To itself, for those who it is cultivated receives a blessing, but if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near being cursed, and its end is to be burnt. Well this is harsh. Nick, are you saying that um, there are people that have walked away from the faith that have been important in my life, that I have tasted fruit from their tree. I have sat under the shade of their tree. And now they are apostate, or now they've they've walked away. Are you saying that they were never saved? Or well, Nick, what about the, the the prodigal? This this period of rebellion and and, the, and this like denial of, of God and then and then coming back? I want to say this about the prodigal. Man, and I can't get into that. The thing about the prodigal is this: neither one of the sons really knew who their father was. So neither one of those sons had the elementary principles and had actually moved on and had their eyes opened and had their hearts understood. Neither one of them did. And so for me, it is quite obvious. No, they had not tasted. They were not in that place where they had actually walked away. They were in a place where they thought they knew him, but they didn't know him. I don't know how to answer those questions. I don't know how to answer those questions about someone in your family, maybe a son, a daughter, maybe a father, that, that actually was, was integral in your spiritual maturity, but now seems to have walked away. I, I, I don't know how to answer those things. What I can say, though, is when the Word of God talks, let it talk to us first. And maybe the question we should be asking is, how do I focus on whether I'm being productive with the grace gifts that God has given me? And not worry about necessarily whether Costal is walking away from Jesus, or whether Priscilla is walking away from Jesus but actually how I can be fruitful, how I can provide shade and how I can provide that fruit. Now, I know some of you might not be satisfied with that idea, and I'm very willing to talk to you further about that. But I also want to say that if you don't produce fruit, there are seasons where you feel like you are not producing. There, are, there, is, a, there is a tree in my front yard that has, its roots have gone into my sewer pipe and have cracked my sewer pipe and it's causing me major problems. So I thought to myself, what if I just chop this tree down? I'll just chop the tree down and then I won't have any more problems. And the plumber comes and says to me, that's not going to work. He says, because those roots will continue to be there, those roots will continue to grow, is there are times and seasons where you feel that you've been damaged. There are times and seasons where you feel like you've been vandalized as a tree. Some delivery truck came and swiped half of it down, half of it ended up on the road. There are times and seasons where actually there's no fruit. You are still a fruit tree because you are rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus. And just because you're experiencing seasons of unfruitfulness does not mean suddenly that your nature has changed and you've become a thorn tree. You are who you are. You are who Jesus said you are, and you are who he paid for you to be. And yes, there is the sense that that we move on from those elementary things, but we don't do it alone. We do it with the, the Spirit of God resident in us, teaching us how to respond to God's grace. Well, Nick, is a rejection of the church a rejection of Jesus? Yes and no. If you've left a church, that's not a rejection. If you've left the church, then it doesn't help me as a pastor to say this. It doesn't help me to say that a rejection of the body of Christ is harmful, it's not God's plan, it's an insult to the head of the body. But it is not in and of itself apostasy. Now those are men and women that we need to lovingly gather back. Those are men and women that haven't necessarily rejected Jesus. Those are men and women that are saying, Man, I've been damaged. I've had branches chopped off. I've had cars driven into me. And I thought I was a fruit tree. But all I seem to be producing is thorns. Those are people that need to be drawn in. I do want to say this, though. I seldom see someone who has rejected the church who doesn't ultimately end up the, uh, rejecting the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as a way to salvation. I hear what I said. I didn't say that they didn't think that Jesus was a way to salvation. And my experience, the rejection of the church doesn't necessarily mean that they've rejected the fact that Jesus is their Savior. They've, they've made their narrow door very wide. And they've said, it's a way. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, he is the way. Band, you can come up. Again, context matters. So we're not finished. What is the point of this text? Well, in verse 9, he says this, which is what I'm saying to you, Mercy Commons. Though we speak this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Though we speak this way, we feel sure, I feel sure, of better things about you. Things that belong to salvation, and that word belong is an interesting word. It means things that echo salvation. Not, not, not as in possessive, but if you have salvation, you will echo it. Just like you stand there and say your name and it comes back at you, there are things that echo salvation. These are the things that accompany salvation. These are the things that help people understand that you are a fruit tree. These are the things that help people see who you belong to. I am sure of these things in your lives, of this I'm sure. For Why? Because you're so good? Why? Because you're so fruitful? Why? Because you're so pretty as a tree? No. For God is not unjust. For God is not unjust to so overlook your work and the love that you have shown His name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire that each one of you show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish remember he started you know i'm I'm worried that you're sluggish he says do these things so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises and so again you're like oh okay so i've got to i've got to do these things no You want to know what the words of the the next verse are? So it says, Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises for when God promises. And I'm not going to steal John Mark's thunder because that's where he starts, for when God promises. Nothing can take you away from that. The issue is not whether someone who has fallen away can be restored. The issue is that if someone is rooted and grounded in love. It is impossible for them to fall away, therefore we don't need to worry about them being restored because it is impossible for them to fall away. So what is the warning? If I deny that my confession in G- of Jesus is exclusive and places an ownership claim on my life, that means that I don't need to live in submission to Jesus, his principles, or for his glory, I don't need to live for the good and benefits for humanity, then I have not grasped the elementary principles. Then I'm not a fruit tree. God is not looking for a technicality. God is not saying, gotcha, I was the game master for our men's retreat and I was looking for people who were cheating. You know what I mean? Because I hate cheaters, right? And God's not up there saying, gotcha, you're out. He's not. He's saying, I am there. I gave you that gift of grace. I gave you that seed. I planted that in good soil. Your roots run deep. Come to me and I will help you bear fruit. He is active. He is present. That is why it is impossible for us to fall away. God is not annoyed with me every time I fail because he keeps me. God is not annoyed that he has to help because he wants to help. God is not annoyed that he has to supply for me again because he wants to supply. It is his joy and his delight. There is work, there is love, there is service, there is imitation. There is earnestness, there is faith, there is patience. But when there is a God that holds us in the grip of His grace, we cannot fall from His grace because nothing can pry His fingers open. There is a God who holds us fast. And because He holds us fast, we can never fall away. I could never hold, keep my hold through life's fearful path for my love is often cold. He will hold me fast. Won't you stand with me, please?
1: Thank you so much for the reminder that it is not about our our strength of holding on to God, but actually the fact that He holds us. He has done the work, and we rest in His, in his grip. Um, and this morning, I just feel the, the prompting to pray for two groups of people. Um, the first is uh, people who maybe feel like they're in the season of unfruitfulness and are wondering, God, like, why am I not bearing fruit? Am I still a fruit tree? Um, there is going to be Trusted leaders to the side to pray for you, to encourage you, to remind you of the truths of God, who He says you are, the things that never change about you, no matter what season you're in. Um, and the second group is um, those who maybe have this view of God as this this taskmaster who's always looking for them to mess up, who's always out to get them. Um, and that brings us so much that that breeds insecurity. And there's so much more for you. There is a God who is not looking for you to mess up, but is actually saying, I'm right here. Come sit with me in my grace. Um, so that, that if you feel like that resonates with you, um, I'd love to, to pray for you. Um, for the rest of us, we're going to practice um, what it looks like to receive the inheritance of his promises. We're going to come to the table that is in our act of saying, God, we, remember to choose, we choose to remember who you are and declare that you are good. We declare that you have done the work you hold us. We rest in that. We can trust you. And it is out of that place of trust and rest that we can live into our inheritance. So there's me tables um, to my left uh, and to your right with uh, wine at the front and bread and juice. Um, and then let's, let's bring it back together and we'll take communion together. God, we declare that we need you. That we can't do this in our own strength. We can't hold on no matter how tight we are. We grip, but we can't hold on by our own strength, but we rest in you in the finished work of the cross. He took the bread, when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread and eat. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's take and drink. We thank you that your sacrifice opens the door. It welcomes us to the table. It says, You are my sons, you are my daughters. Come sit with me. Have an inheritance that is secure because of what God has done, because it was finished. And I pray against the enemy who wants to bring insecurity, who wants to bring anxiety, would you silence those voices in us? Would, you tr- would the truth of what you have done and who you say we are ring true? Would it bring the loudest voice we hear? We are your sons, we are your daughters because of what you have done. That we live in the new covenant. We don't have to add anything. We don't have to do, we don't have to work harder. But we rest in you. We declare that we need you. We need your help to rest in you, God. Teach us how to rest. Teach us how to live into the the new covenant, into our identities as sons and daughters. We love you and we need you. We're going to wrap up, but I would just love just to, as us together, just to end singing that refrain, oh Lord, I need you, declaring our dependency on him. And it's also a declaration of trust that if we say we need him,
0: he will meet us. We can trust him. Let's worship together. Thank you, Mercy Commons. Uh, let's go out in the strength and power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go out there and be the church.